we're here today uh, to talk again about this place where we can take the information that we learn in one domain of knowledge and transfer it to another domain. And here to help me today talk about that is Sally Jo, who is an artist. Hi, Sally. Hey. Good to have you here today. Yeah, oh. good to be here. I'm, I'm really excited about your project. Cool. Well, I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about yourself. And then I also want to hear about your journey as an artist, maybe some about your process as an artist and how you think that might connect to oh, something simple like the fundamental principles that govern the universe. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm from rural South Dakota. I did um, six years in the military. I've lived in um, South Korea and England and then wow. about five states and those were mostly related to my work. It wasn't like leisure travel. Um, and I have been out of that line of work since 2015. I attended Southern Illinois um, or SIUE, Southern Illinois Edwardsville uh, for school in um, fine arts and I have a bachelor's of fine arts with the emphasis in metalsmithing not currently doing metalsmithing work because I don't have a shop. Um, and I've, I've done artwork for a really long time, um, but I've done it seriously uh, since 2015. And I consider my artwork to have three categories. I have um, investigative exercises, which is where I would do realism studies or studies of other artists or other styles, anything like that. And then I have some, some work that's aesthetic work that I do, well, I mean, basically for money. Like, uh, I re most recently did a Emerald Coast series because that's where I'm living. And so I did it specifically for tourist sales. Also, it's, it's fun to make just beautiful things for the sake of making beautiful things. But then I have my core work. And all of what we're talking about right now would relate to my core work specifically. Um, my core work usually involves a long meditative process. Uh, it's generally started in rough sketches and it's worked and reworked and transformed over the years. It's where I incorporate what the surrealists would call the internal mythos or archetypal mythos. And um, when I initially get the impulses to do what I consider to be my core work, it's almost, from a non-verbal way of understanding because I kind of get an image in my head and it kind of almost grates on me until I draw it and then the first or second or even third or fourth iteration sometimes aren't right and then sometimes the thing that I started with and this 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 word like this idea kind of outside of words um, has to kind of come into a form that I can really see in my mind. And then once it does, it might take me another like long time to figure out what the words are to it. Or maybe it'll come instantly. Maybe it'll immediately have the words. But those are what I consider my really important things. And then sometimes I'm not sure if that's art or if that's visual philosophy now that I've gained more language about it. And if you see me look down a lot, I, I have a lot of this half noted out because uh -huh. I think very visually. And so if I'm, uh, 
that's why I had to do a lot of that with my Vanderclay interview too, because if I get quick into a subject, I, I get kind of stumbly about my words because I, it's not my first way of thinking about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, well, I really appreciate you putting the notes together. Uh, and I wanted to tell our viewers too, that if they want more of your background, that you talked extensively about your journey uh, in an interview with Paul Vanderclay. Do you recall what he called that video if they want to do a search for it? Um, I think it's, uh, Something like artist, soldier, soldier. Or art, or military. soldier, yeah. artist. Yeah, soldier, yeah. artist. I think something. Yeah, something like that. like that. Yeah. So if they search Paul Vanderclay and soldier artist, they will get more information about your. I'm team. hoping to be on the uh, Sorting Myself Out podcast with Ryan oh. and Merck. Oh wow, uh, that's really in, cool. In a few weeks, because I really have liked some of their stuff about integrated personality and i i don't know if they're smack on but i really appreciate the initiative and mm -hmm. i especially like um i like to see young men trying to figure out how to live life well <laughs> yeah uh, this is great i just makes me so happy not that it should specifically be young men but um i I would say I've had more casual friendships with men than I have had women. Mm -hmm. And the state of young men in America has, well, I think maybe even internationally, has been like, it's painful and afflicted, I think. And unnecessarily so. Because if it were necessary, it wouldn't burden you. But it's the unnecessariness of it that just bothers you. Mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a side tangent, sorry. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been thinking about a lot of these things, too, just because of the kind of connection that you and I both have in our interest in Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And um, I mentioned in the interview that I did yesterday that it sort of seems to me that Jordan Peterson getting out there and talking about things, these things has outsourced the problem now. And now there's many side conversations going on of people uh, like sorting yourself out and uh, rebel wisdom and some of these other groups oh, yeah. out there um, working on the problem and talking to people. And I think there's more people out there working on the problem than just Peterson related. Yes. Uh-huh. And it and it's it's really interesting. It's just all all coming up at the same time. Well, if I go back to what you said about your core work, when you were talking about how many times this concept is just on the periphery of your consciousness, and makes it a little bit difficult to access it. Um, yesterday, I was talking with this geophysicist who specializes in wave theory and. Um, he mentioned a phenomenon called stochastic resonance. Yeah. And, and it was fascinating to me that basically he's talking about those times when the signal, whatever the signal might be, if you're just thinking about waves, it's a signal that where the, the amplitude and frequency are just, the amplitude is too low for the signal to come through. But if you introduce chaos, for, for example, in the, in, for example, white noise would be one way of introducing chaos that will increase the amplitude and bring the signal into a register where you I, can hear it. I don't know if I agree with you guys about that. I watched it. Okay. Um, I, I, I find silence much more useful, but I, th I feel this is going to sound one of those weird things to say, but I don't feel like a lot of people hear silence. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of those um, 
gifts that you have um, growing up in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And my, like, I very, very specifically remember being five years old and my dad taking me out to the back porch and him just teaching me how to sit from the time the sun hits the surface of the ground till it goes under to watch a whole sunset. And he did it with me, I mean, more than a couple of times and teaching me to sit through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you learn how to like listen to silence, listen to all of that. And I think that's one of these soul hungers that everybody's afflicted with. And, and that's part of the religious problems. That's part of the mental problems. Um, and, and, and I struggle with it too. If I have long, long periods where I'm stuck in, in town um, and by town, I just mean, I mean, anywhere over the population of five. <laughs> because it, it I mean places where are very active when you say mm-hmm. town when you say town you mean places where there's a lot of activity going on where there's more human imprint on the earth than nature imprint on the earth okay um because it's not just people doing stuff it's also like i hear i hear the electric lines like it disrupts my day mm-hmm like I hear the hum and like not all the time, not every day, but it, it exhausts me slowly over time. And even though I live there for practical reasons, it's, it's a burden on me. Like, cause I know what existence is like without that. And it, and, and, and humans are so much smaller than we think ourselves. We get stuck in these really, really small frames and, and people get this desperation and, from it and it's like you know don't be desperate man there's thousands of acres of desert and field and like we just aren't this cancer on the planet that people think we are we can live off of an acre we can i mean you have to do stuff to it but we know how so yeah, um, I, I once heard the figure that if you took every and of course this was 1980 but it wouldn't be too far off now but if you took every human being on earth and gave them three square feet to stand in i mean that's not a lot but at least you know just for numeric purposes, that every human being on earth would fit within the confines of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah. And I thought that doesn't sound right, but then I did the numbers and guess what? It was true. (laughs) So even with today's population, you probably fit within the confines of, I don't know, Miami maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's just, people get this idea that like, what's really funny if you're from like a very rural place, and not to pick on California, but why not? They deserve it. Um, all of the event, environmental, like, crying and pleading and carrying on is from places that have trashed themselves. And then you're a rural person who takes damn good care of your road ditches because that's where your hay comes from. And then you get policies trying to be pushed on you from places that have trashed themselves. And you're like, why the heck would I listen to you inner city people that throw your trash out your windows and have no self-control about if I want to burn my trash and then bury it? Good God, leave us alone. You're the ones that are wrecking the planet. So that's, just- yeah, that's where we start getting this, um, where we start seeing the, well, where the polarization starts to show up is in these areas. Well, and then like, I I know that I'm in a unique position because I cross over from one to the other. 
So I do kind of understand the impulse to like ban plastic straws. Although I don't think that it's going to work because if you can't get people to throw plastic straws into a trash can, how are you going to get them to ban them for real? Because the problem is personal discipline. It has nothing to do with plastic straws existing. Hmm. So that's, that, that comes back to this whole idea again of getting down to what is the fundamental principle that's at work here. So, so I want to bring it back around yeah, to your yeah. comment about silence because I think there is another connection to art there that ties into one of these fundamental principles. I want, I want to derail because I'm distracted and I, I want to show you this. So this is one of my core pieces that I didn't quite get. It's not in final form yet, but I did a re-sketch of it to show you. And I thought of this in spring of 2018, and it seems to relate to what you're talking about. Um, it's a hiker. And mm -hmm. then if you see the stars, I was titling the stars um, Science, Philosophy, Art, and History. And within science, I was including physics. And then they relate to the individual, and it creates a compass on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And I, I need to redo it. I had a piece that it was done in, and then the process got messed up and then there was a move and it, it's all destroyed but i'm going to redo it in a like a well done piece um but what was really interesting when you talked about your reverse pyramid thing and then i had done that more than a year ago that's kind of exciting i thought yeah i absolutely i mean just this morning i had an experience where i i'm still reeling from it actually the 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 thing I had talked with on my interview with Paul Vanderclay about how the universe is composed of information. And I got some pushback on that from some scientists who were in the comments saying, well, if that were true, there'd be a Nobel prize in there. I'm not, I'm not attempting to even say that I know anything about physics. I'm just it's saying like, there's like, I'm not in your dominance hierarchy. Calm down. Yeah, there's some sort of a principle here that's operating. Well, so then this morning I open up a video of Eric Berlind, who happens to be almost Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he's talking about his new theory of gravity. And smack in the middle of the first 10 minutes of his video, he lays out this picture complete with um, Photoshopped versions that lay out exactly what I was talking about. And I'm like, oh, Oh, it's a real thing. <laughs> so I think yeah. what's happening is that these truths that come to us from whatever field of endeavor that we're really deeply well, engaged in are this, this transferable. This is what I was talking about, the undeniable serendipitous. Mm -hmm. It's like, in spite of whatever doubts you may or may not have in your life, there is the undeniable serendipitous. Like, it's just not, you just can't it's there and they they say that this is very similar with inventions a lot of times if an invention um happens there were three or four different people that almost came up with the idea at the same time right yeah they call that like the climate of opportunity when the climate of opportunity mm -hmm. arises the 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 idea will arise in many different environments hmm and this kind of goes back to what I was saying the other day about 
how a word only has as much meaning as its hearers are prepared to understand. So words grow in depth to us as we age from childhood until adulthood and concepts grow in meaning to us and, and all of that. Relationships grow in meaning. At least they should. <laughs> yeah, theoretically. At least we hope that that's what's happening. So let's go back to your core work for a second. And I, I still want to explore, I'll let go of stochastic resonance in a minute, but I want to explore this idea of silence um, not being, so, so we have a problem. We have a signal that's not strong enough. One way to amplify the signal is to introduce chaos. And you're talking about another way of amplifying the signal being silence. And yeah, I think there may be a way in which both are true. So just give yeah, me a- yeah. Because because the- what I find because because I'm I'm from a place that's maybe much more attuned to quieter things, mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to find a way back to the silence so I can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's too much for me. Like I, I almost don't attend um, concerts or a lot of things. Like I'll make myself nowadays, but they're they're exhausting. There's too much, and it's just like sensory overload. Um, so I have no need for additional chaos. There's mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so where I thought that what what you're saying might connect to a very important principle that seems to show up in both art and. Um, I don't know if you'd call it philosophy, something Jonathan Peugeot was talking about in terms of boundaries and how we need boundaries because if we don't have boundaries, the magnitude of details start to spin off at the edges is kind of the way he's talking about it. But in my mind, I'm thinking of negative space. Now, you know, when you're in art school and they're teaching you to draw, they said many times if you can't, draw the positive image in a good representation the way you want to look at the negative space and draw the negative space instead. So in my mind, the negative space kind of provides a boundary and, and silence is like a negative space. It creates a boundary that protects the central core of the thing. Maybe it's just a generation difference too. Um, because my whole life has been very full, like information wise, you know, like TV, internet, all of that, mm-hmm. especially my adult life. As soon as I left out here, very, very full, very, very, like you could easily be overwhelmed by other people's thoughts and impulses. I think about sometimes just packaging. Packaging is exhausting because you have all these words talking to you all the time, you know, and, and you, I, I long for a residence with no words on the walls or on the, or on the soap bottle or the coffee maker or the on and on and on and on. It's so loud. Oh, wow. I so that. I never thought about packaging that way, except when I was a child because I lived in a environment where I didn't have a lot of friends around. I was, we lived in Europe when I was a little kid, so I didn't know the language at first and I'm by myself a lot. And I used to read the cereal box when I was eating breakfast, <laughs> just well, for something to do. 
but that's when you're trying to add stimulation rather than a lot of people do that but that that is so much stimulation and you'll see um depictions of really really rich homes or really really like iconic like this is how you should live type places Mm -hmm. in the movies and what's the first thing they do they're all white they're all clean they're all drawn out like there's nothing and why does that depict opulence right now because it didn't used to be that way it used to be like the baroque depicted opulence right Uh, it's because of the escape wow and i reminds me of something i heard about um the baroque painting when they would commission a guy to do a painting back in those days they would actually pay him for every extra detail because they wanted it so detailed right and now it's the opposite. Now everything has to be minimalist, absolutely minimalist. Almost almost minimalist to a fault. Like, yeah. And I like the aesthetic of minimalism to an extent, but at some point, minimalism for minimalism's sake is destroying meaning too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you so want to explore that idea a little bit? Um, minimalism? Uh, for well, minimalism's sake is destroying meaning. Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's all, it's any of the isms, uh, the impressionism, um, like, maybe, maybe, I don't know about surrealism. Surrealism, of course, is my refuge, so, don't, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, well, a lot of the isms, like, when they, when they let go of realism, and we went into these different forms of art to be liberated, when you start doing it for the sake of that, um, and you just give up on narrative and like just leaving everything open to interpretation. And I hate to say it, but I, I think a lot of people do it cause it's easier. Hmm. And it, it irritates me cause it's like, Hmm, did you want to leave it open to interpretation or was it easier? Yeah. You know, did you just like let go? Cause yeah. it doesn't look like you're being skillful at all. That's not what it looks like. And it's definitely easier to do things without skill. I noticed that a lot when I was first starting to try to paint conceptually, that I wanted to leave it to the leave it to the viewer to tell me what it meant because I couldn't think my way through it. And I, then I started and, to think, I'm, I think I'm, I'm being, being a little careful here. <laughs> because I, I went through and looked at your art and I, I do realize that you're a very conceptual artist and I have maybe been a major critic of conceptual art and I don't want to be being cruel when it is unwarranted because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it is with you but I don't know you that well so it's like you know it, it's one of those things glad well, some of my conversations weren't recorded <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm not seeing it as cruelty because believe me I go through all this stuff in my own head as I work and uh and I have this idea that it's all about gathering the skills that you need to get where you want to go. So I have this idea in my head of something I want to produce, but I'm incapable of producing it right now with the level of well, skill that I have. I mean, but I'm going to keep trying. Did and you see my I'll crossroads piece? The cro- which one was it? It's just a little guy standing by crossroads, sun above him. It's very simple. So I'm not sure. I, I remember well, mainly the ones that have the, the iconic sun. Uh, that's a lot of image. my work. Um, yeah. But 
the reason I brought that one up is because that one is very minimalistic and sometimes I go that way and then I do question myself some because I want to find that line that's not too not minimalism for minimalism's mm -hmm. sake but then sometimes I do find it very effective it's just a very effective tool that can be used and so it tempts you you know well and I don't think that's I mean I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because if you don't leave a space for the viewer to connect with their own um, oh, perception of what you're saying. I'm typically using it for scaling because when you increase the background, you diminish the figure. When you diminish the figure, you put him in a better relative space to actual nature. You make people think of themselves as smaller because they are. Or, well, I mean, coming from my perspective. Okay, so you're trying. So I think I hear you saying that you're putting more, more focus on the background and less focus um, on here. No, I'm just using the contrast between the background and the subject to make the subject smaller. Mm -hmm. Like, just and to, to make, make a statement about make a statement the, about this relative yeah, scale. Yeah, like our place on the earth. Like we're just mm -hmm. not that big. We're not dominant. You know, mm -hmm. and in some ways that's a relief. You know, it's like it's like a child with their parents. The child's not dominant, and so it's a relief. And so that's why the figure in the mountains, the figure isn't necessarily dominant, and it's a relief. Or at least I think so. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. No, no, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, because children want that sense of um, not being responsible. I, I think what happens as we become adults, we get we can get an overinflated sense of responsibility and start to think that we should be able to fix everything. And the fact that we can't fix everything means that we should get the government to come in and fix everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to show you this. Um, I thought of this while you were talking to Paul. Um, I, th I hope it, I, sometimes when I draw things, it doesn't make them as much sense to the viewer as it does to me in the first go round. That's your cone. And then the lines of the hierarchy are existing on that cone going towards the point. But and there's many cones. And the uh, the infinity sign above it, what is that representing? Well, well, the infinity sign is so. If you if you do go and look at that Hobbes vibration, you'll you'll understand. It'll make sense because they're continuously flowing in and out of each other, and it's it's a rather lame depiction of the Hobbes vibration because the Hobbes vibration is a little more dynamic than that. But you got to reduce stuff to make it two D. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's is the this, Hobbes vibration, the one that, that, uh, Eric Weinstein was, yeah. okay. Yes. Uh-huh. That continually flowing in and out of, um, I didn't realize there was a cone in that one. Well, there's not, but what I'm thinking is the cone is in there as well. Um, cause I did this. So you have the cone by itself and you've got the religion running through the center and you've got the other things because religion like gives you or religion or philosophy because they're they're the same but different um depending on how you're thinking of them but they give you a framework of language that that is like a trellis 
that these other lines of thoughts can grow on, which I think is a lot of what Peterson's doing. He's reestablishing that mental trellis that allows these other um, lines of thought to work on. And once you once you understand that that framework exists, you can apply your other knowledge to it like you were doing with the elements of design. Mm -hmm. And I think I've done it with, um, I took critical theory or critical thinking, which isn't, it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the messed up postmodern one. It's actual yeah, critical Not thinking. critical theory. You're talking about critical no, thinking. Critical thinking, which was yeah. one of my, the best course I ever took in the service. Um, they had a critical thinking course and it's, showing you how to see your bias and showing you um, how to do analytic analysis. It was a short course and there was probably a lot more a person could have went into it. I wish I could just take it again, um, but you can't. Um, but it's, that's something that applies. Once I took critical thinking, it started to apply to everything else. And then I could see the things that had been successful. I was kind of doing that anyway. And then I could apply it to other subjects. And that kind of got me on this path before I was on this path. So, yeah. Got you uh, on uh, this path. You mean the, the uh, path of art? Well, no. Um, no, that was a divergent conundrum. Uh, no, uh, finding Peter, deciding to be intelligent, basically. Oh. I, <laughs> I, uh, I had... Um, after, if people watched before, I had a rather crazy previous relationship and divorce. And then at some point after that, when I was trying to pull myself together, I decided I wasn't going to be stupid anymore. <laughs> and I, um, I watched a lot of uh, iTunes U lectures before YouTube got real big. And then I just kind of kept going from there. I decided to read books about everywhere that I was... Um, supposed to understand for my job and then when I moved into other fields I read books about that and I just I just started teaching myself a lot and it was it was very good it was a very big change and it, it didn't happen all at once it was kind of slow um but it was a it was a conscious decision I don't think I knew what it meant at the time and then it just seems to have never ceased it's just gotten bigger and bigger and the more I do it the more I have the stamina to do it and the more I want to do it more. And like, now I'm at a point where I wish I could just go back in time and start earlier because I don't think I have enough life to learn all the things I want to learn. Well, I, I just woke up two years ago. So <laughs> I really can think, man, I wasted all those years, but I could have been filling it up with all this interesting stuff. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't wake up all at once. It was slow. And then it was like, I didn't even realize I was awake all at once. It's, and then it's just all of a sudden, I don't even know that I realized that I was awake as so much as I realized a lot of other people were asleep and there was no point in dealing with them. I had to keep looking for other people to talk to. Yeah. Oh, so much of everything depends on context. I mean, when not realizing that you were awake until you started thinking about how other people were asleep, but you just, you're, you have a context shift there. And then all of a sudden everything goes into focus because of that context shift. So. Pretty much. Yeah. Have you looked into any sacred geometry? Sacred geometry. No, I haven't. I'll write so it down. I'll I'm, look it up. I'm, I'm back and forth on it because sometimes I think it's all, just blah 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 hippie hooey sometimes i do and then sometimes i'm like 
holy cow, it's the most awesome thing I've ever seen. So I drew, this is a rendition of Metatron's cube. And it's not normally in these colors. I did this just to make it kind of more understandable on camera. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a derivative of the flower of life if you keep expanding it. And within it is supposed to be every platonic shape. And so there's the cube, there's the pyramid, um, the, I can't say them all, right? Decahedral, like all of that different kinds of stuff. And it what's it called? Can you tell me the name again so I can write it down? Metatron's cube. Metatron, okay. Metatron's cube. And I think somehow, and I'm not sure how, but this all relates to that singular point and going in and out of points and the i think you'll at least at the least they're visually stunning sacred mm -hmm. sacred geometry pieces and they're they're very old um they've existed in history and then a lot of people think they have magical powers mm -hmm. i i don't really ascribe to that necessarily mm -hmm. but they are very beautiful and i've been um i've been playing with them trying to figure out how to incorporate them i've thought about using them for backgrounds, um, like this is the flower of life as the sun in a doodle. I'm just trying to see, you know, mm -hmm. but this idea of everything coming in and out of one point, just kind of, I'm transfixed by it for some reason. And then it's really interesting what you're talking about, because I remembered at some point in my senior drawing, I had an epiphany a lot like the Michelangelo and Marble thing, mm -hmm. where I realized all of the shapes and all of the symmetry and all of that exist on the paper before you draw the line, all mm -hmm. of the time, everywhere, mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of crazy. And, and I, I was thinking about that in terms of... Um, because I, I did uh, visual, I, I did imagery analysis. Mm -hmm. And so the way I look at structures and the way I look at places and shapes is different. And, um, and then I was thinking too about people who've been in prison and they understand the footage of the room differently because they're hyper aware of the size of the space. Okay. Um, and somehow this is related to that because it's through art you become aware of how different things are related like i remember when i was first studying realism and i was painting a lot and i wanted to be able to do that classical still life and stuff and i looked around and i realized how everything could be interpreted as paint and i just had a day where suddenly i was just seeing how i could paint everything mm -hmm. and it's that's 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 the same it's the same as this thought about um Michelangelo is saying everything is already in the marble and that's the same as this different lines of knowledge all converging well so um Michelangelo where is that quote ah I'll read it again for the people who missed it yesterday not even the best of artists has any conception that a single marble block does not contain within its excess, and that is only attained by the hand that obeys the intellect. And um, I tied that together with a quote from Nassim Taleb, 
Nassim Taleb has written a book called Fragile and Anti-Fragile. I didn't realize he was the person who had read that book. I've heard of Nassim Taleb before, and now I'm like, I have so many books I want to read, but that's yeah. very interesting. So he was talking about the wisdom and effectiveness of subtraction over addition. And, you know, when they teach us to draw, oftentimes one of the methods is to cover the whole page with graphite. And then you reduce by just erasing the parts that you don't want. Yeah. And I find that for me, I get a much more um, close representation of reality when I do reductive painting than I do when I do additive painting. So I understand that idea very well that all the, all the information that's necessary is there. And I think that that's a huge idea that, that that's true about the universe, that all the necessary information is there, but we only can access that part of it which we are equipped to access because we haven't, not only that we haven't learned enough, but we haven't built out our capacity or our capacity hasn't been built out enough to be so able to receive I, that knowledge. I wrote this about this big, um, this big shape that I made and I'm going to, Show uh -huh. it and then I'll read it really quick. So within that blue infinity circle, I have written, the arrows are information and data and experience and the moment. And that's the relation of data to other data. And so that is moving into this central point, getting more and more related to other data. And then when you get there, you gain a new understanding of the data you were missing, you didn't know you were missing, and then it continues like that forever. So that's like the present rewriting the past. Yes. Right? Oh my gosh. Isn't that such a cool thing when you read a yeah. book and then the book rewrites your entire experience? And then yes. it's like, we are time travelers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right now. That's anyway, sorry, like that's a previous little trip that I've had completely sober. Um, well, I mean, I think that's true on so many levels that the present rewrites the past because the understanding well, no, that we now no, have it's about not the, just the present rewriting the past, people in the past who wrote books are rewriting the future as well. Yes, yes, and it's just like it's very trippy. For someone who's yeah. never tripped to say, I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming that's what tripping is like. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and if you go back even further than that, and this is my own personal idea, is that, that, the, that the Bible, the Old and New Testament, have in them information that is so much deeper and more profound than we can even understand because we have not yet got to the place where we've got gained enough data to understand what's in there. But as we grow in our knowledge of the data that's available in the universe, then our understanding of that also grows. So if I take what I'm learning from quantum physics and I use that and I go back and I read the book of John, I'm reading it in an entirely different way than I was reading it before. So here's something what I wanted to ask you. How did you, what was your initial realizations about um, getting into math and where did that cross over, what, what was your starting point off into that direction? Because I've, I've been interested in math on and off, but I haven't found a good handhold in between the two lines of thinking really. 
Well, if I go way back, when I was in high school, I was completely fascinated with math. And so I was going to be a math major. So when I started college, I started as a math major. Screwed around, drank too much, was hung over in most of my calculus classes. And because I had not had the opportunity to have calculus in high school, I was getting it for the first time in college from an old dude who was very boring and I couldn't understand what he was talking about. And the thing that always bothered me about calculus was that all the other math that I had learned in high school, trigonometry, algebra, geometry, everything works out. So beautiful. I used to love logarithms. Back in the day when we had to do logarithms with a book, <laughs> I loved them. See, so, but, but then when I took calculus, it's like, no, it's so variable. There's so many possibilities. It just drove me nuts because everything didn't work out. So I dropped out of math and ended up majoring in English and speech and drama. And many, many years later became an artist, but it's only in the last few years that I, well, actually my recent interest in math is from Chris talking to Paul Vanderclay about his excitement about calculus. And I realized when he was talking about the two aspects of calculus, the asymptote and the maximum divisibility to create. I looked up the asymptote just so I could remotely understand it before we started talking. (laughs) Yeah. So, I, so if you take you're gonna like it, two I ideas, think the acetone relates to this um, this hop vibration. Uh huh. I think it relates. I think you'll be really excited when you when you get to watch that. I I really really struggled with math, and but it really is strange because um, geometry I was fine, and I think maybe if math were written a different way. I wouldn't struggle with it at all. My brother is one of those crazy people that can do long division in his head. Mm. And I don't think we're different and intelligent, but we are like, I just am more verbal and more, more female basically. And he's just more male. And and so I can communicate with it about him, with him. But when I, ever I tried to do it by the books or when I tried to do it in time tests or just all with the, the numeral system, I just get lost. But when it comes to graphing or physical things, or even I, I have a great book that um, is on the history of mathematics. And like when they started doing squaring, where the word square root comes from is they used to draw out the numbers in dots. And when you made the dots in squares and you circled one side is how you would get the square root of things. Because, like, if you have 16 dots and you put them in a perfect square and you circle one side, it's four. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and doesn't that make a thousand times more sense than the silly swishy line that we do? Uh-huh. Yeah, the swishy line is a poop sandwich. The little dots are gorgeous, and I would have understood that. Well, um, you know, one thing you might do... Um, because years ago I was involved in politics and at the time I was on the education committee when I was in the legislature. And um, I discovered that a lot of, um, some teachers were having much more effectiveness with their students if they went back to the old mathematics textbooks. If they went back to the textbooks that were written in the 1920s, 1910s, and used that to teach math, that their kids would actually win the math Olympics 
over the kids that were being taught math with the modern um, oh, yeah. methods. So I think if you went back and got some of those old books, that it might make a big difference for you. I'll have to see. I've just, there's so much that I'm trying to do with my life and I, I'm trying to figure out what are the most important things and really go after them. Yep. Yeah. Finding yeah. a focus, finding a boundary is uh, really important. Yeah. It, it was kind of great to me that you, um, the one painting that you came back to me on was the one with the little narrative in it, because mm -hmm. I think that's maybe the way my work is going. Um, I just did a show before I left, um, not a real formal show, but a nice little show at a coffee shop before I left um, where I'm living now. And the things that are really resonating with people seem to be these little narrative works. And I've got this idea of doing a, um, a fine art product as a two-page comic book kind of piece with the narrative right with it and mm -hmm. either having the subject speaking or like um the third person narrator like a story speaking mm -hmm. um in the dictation and i was always trying to avoid that especially in art school i was trying to avoid that and then when it comes down to it a lot of my pieces are very narrative and that's what people really seem to pick up on and like. And even when I don't add the words, that's what people like. So maybe just letting that all pour out will be fine. Well, it seems like the ones that are getting into the museums right now are the ones that are doing something that's never been done before. So if you find something that's never been done before, you should go after it. <laughs> oh, well, I think, I think people would say it's been done continuously because it's it's the way all illustration is it's just instead of illustrating the words i'm literating the image mm -hmm. but i i don't know i think the avant-garde is it's kind of like minimalism for minimalism's sake <laughs> i'm very skeptical i i wonder how much difference there was between my art school experience and your art school experience I never went to art school. Oh, okay. That's why there's no yeah. skepticism in you. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely self-taught. Good, good. Yeah. That, okay, that makes, that helps me understand where you're coming from because I have like a, just a rich skepticism of some of the things that you are using very like, I feel like you're legitimate about them, but then you're using terms that I've heard people use in illegitimate and I'm trying to figure that out still. And so, oh, so for example, like, like which which kind of terms? Um, like doing the thing that's never been done before. Oh, okay. Like, like for me, uh huh. I'm like, yeah, but you shouldn't do the thing that's never been done before just because you're looking for a thing that's never been done before. Because in my mind, what gets um, articulated is a particular tablecloth made of feminine hygiene items. Yes. and a pile of cement and chains and a lot of just other horrible hideous things that had never yeah. been done before and so i'm very put off by that kind of phrasing but you're coming from it from a different place and so i don't want to be putting that upon you uh unnecessarily well i'm glad you clarified but um when i you, yeah when i said it i was thinking i was thinking about myself and thinking 
I don't seem to be a person who does anything that's never been done before. Everything that I do is can be done by anybody. Yeah. Um, I do it in a in a way that's uniquely my way, but it's Have not you? the kind of thing that now just hold on a second. It's not All the right. kind of thing that would ever get in a museum. Um, because I know what goes in museums nowadays, but you're young. And so what I was thinking in my head was if you happen to gravitate towards something, towards doing something that hasn't been done before, why not use it? Because why not get why not get something that is sensible and meaningful into the museums, even if it has to go in in the guise of being something that's never been done before? So yes, it is a phrase that can describe a lot of the garbage that's out there today, like cutting a cow in half and putting it in formaldehyde, right? But it's also possible to take legitimate, truthful, beautiful ideas and do them in a way that have never been done before. I just have never figured out how to do it. Well, that, that seems valid. I, I'm at a point when it comes to anything in line with the mainstream museums, the mainstream galleries, that I don't know if I care to play the game. Mm -hmm. Which maybe I shouldn't be like that. I just am very burnt about it. And I, I would rather connect to broader culture <laughs> even if that's through uh -huh. digital copies online. Um, so I'm not sure where I should um, try and put myself. I've, I've tried to be in a few shows and I've tried to be in different things. And the, the thing that I've seemed to find over and over again is the things that get awards or chosen or looked at is people who will play a certain political game or people that know someone. And oh. it, I, my entire faith in that system is just gone. And maybe I'll get it back. Maybe I just haven't found the right places and my experience is limited. So I should hold that in mind. That's just where I'm at with it right now. Well, I certainly understand not wanting to put your faith in the system. <clears throat> I don't want to put my faith in the system. Because that's a dead end. I, and, but, but I would hope that you could not go down the route of cynicism because you have a lot to, that's true. It's, it, it, you have it, a lot it, to say, it, you have a lot to offer, right? So if you get well, cynical, then you lose that. I just, I just don't know if I'm, if I want to, I, I don't know. The, the last couple of shows, I looked around at the quality of the work and the quality just didn't matter at all. And it's, it's such a killer, like when you put hundreds of hours into something and because your cause is wrong. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But ultimately, I think you're doing your work for yourself and for your own exploration. And then out of that will arise something that is useful and beautiful for someone else. Well, I sincerely hope so. Yeah, like that, I, that, well, I, I know. I know that's true. I know that at the deepest level, I know that's true about, because here's my theory. Okay, I'm, I'm full of theories. <laughs> because each of us is composed of this very unique set of experiences, what I call the experiential DNA, it's where you've been and how you've grown up and who your friends are and what books you've read and what songs you've heard and what 
paintings you've attempted and whatever it is that's created your matrix inside of experience. You see the world through a lens that nobody else does and you communicate it through a lens that nobody else has. So you need to communicate that into the universe so that all of that, to use the Borg terminology, all that distinctiveness gets added to the collective, right? <laughs> so that's funny you should bring up the Borg. I love them so much. I, I, I understand the horror of them, but then at the same time, um, when Seven of Nine is seeking that perfection, Mm -hmm. And she says, like, oh, that's our God. And then I think about how that overlays with the whole idea of, like, what is the truth and the spoken truth might be, like, what God is and how that bring, pulls you together and makes you feel powerful. And it's really interesting because I know that probably wasn't the plan Star Trek had when they portrayed that. But it's kind of funny. Um, when you go off into these lines in fiction, you can't help but portray very, very true things even when you don't want to. Mm -hmm. It's like the guy who, um, the guy who is the producer of the movies of Star Trip Troopers, he viewed the Star Trip Trooper book as though they were fascist, but they weren't fascist. So even though he tried to portray them as a parody, he gained a cult following for people who understood them through the screen of portraying them as fascist because they were just a very, very true, um, like it's because it's a funny republic type capitalism where it's the, the whole service equals citizenship thing. So even mm -hmm. in his mockery, he portrayed what was good about the book oh. <laughs> on accident. And, it, and, and that's, I find that happens over and over again um, with things because even in our fictions, we portray truth even when you don't want to. <laughs> Well, and, and it's, it's totally possible to see a character. So the other day, my daughter and I saw Toy Story 4. You're, you're, you, you're, is it a little girl or a little boy that you have? I have a little boy. Okay, so he's not old enough yet to watch Toy Story 4, I assume. I just, I'm so tired of the sequel, sequel, sequels. But. <laughs> yes, okay. Anyway, I'm just saying, in this story, there's a little, there's a little girl and she makes a little toy in her kindergarten class using a, a spork and a and a uh, pipe stem cleaner okay she wraps the pipe stem around the spork and it's got two arms and then she puts two little googly eyes on it and she has a little character and the little spork comes alive with the toys but he thinks he's trash so he keeps wanting to run back to the trash because that's where he was, the pieces were dug out of the trash and then put together to make something. And he thinks he's trash. Well, I saw that as this very deep psychological story. And so I'm trying to tell my daughter, wow, that was amazing the way they portrayed that sense of abandonment and dejection. And she's going like, what are you talking about? He just thought it was more comfortable in there. <laughs> So, so I have no idea what the author intended from that story, but both yeah. my daughter and I saw two completely different frames, well, right? Well, a lot like the Starship Trooper thing, because there's people that watch that and they're like, oh my God, they're fascist space Nazis. And then there's other people that watch it and they're like, yeah, that's the true Republic, service equals citizenship. And they get really excited about it and you don't understand, but like, 
Yeah. Like, and, and you don't know where the truth resides. That's like reading uh, 1984. It's like, okay, I think we're all being played because we don't know where the truth is anymore. So more interesting than 1984, totally a tangent, but have you ever read Anthem? Oh, that's Anne Rand, right? Yeah, I don't remember reading Anthem, but I did read Fountainhead and I did read Atlas Shrugged. This one is very different and it's the most like futurist kind of one. I'm going to have to go back and read it then. Um, and, and in that book, one of the major premises is, is society has either hidden away or lost the word I. Hmm. And so the lead characters are desperate for a word and they don't know what it is. And they, they, they go through the, and it's actually one of the more, I mean, as cheerful as Anne Rand can be, it's one of the more cheerful books that she mm. writes, whereas some of them are just depressing, but in a good way. Like, it makes you, they do all make you think, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I better, I'm, I'm going to write that down. You've given me lots to think about, Sally, and uh, I know you have to be ready for when your baby wakes up, so... Well, he's doing good. I um I took him to play with, or well, he doesn't play with them yet, but he just watched them with some other little kids before we talked. So he's pretty wow. Well, it's been a delight talking to you. I hope we get to talk again. Yeah. Yeah, I I appreciate you just stopping me because I do get very into thinking and then I forget to let other people talk and I'm sorry about that. Um, hey, it's been extremely enjoyable. I've learned a lot from you. And, uh, all right. Well, good luck with your channel and I hope it can take off for you. And do you want to tell people what your website is so they can look oh, at Oh, um, I suppose I could. My my website is Sally Joe M. Cooper and it's got so uh, my there's visual. There's an M in be between Sally and Joe. There's an M. So No, it's Sally, Sally Joe, Joe and then there's M. an M and then Cooper. It's an yeah. abbreviation. My my last name is Michelson Cooper. Okay. There's just there's so many Michaels or there's so many Coopers in the world that just being Sally Joe Cooper turns into like a conundrum. So I when I changed my name, I changed it to Michelson Cooper. Okay. Yeah. So Sally Joe M Cooper dot com and people mm -hmm. can go to see your art. Yeah. And and, and uh, I'm starting doing all of my artist writings as uh, videos instead of writing. Nice. I think it's more relatable. Is so is there a blog on your website? There's uh the about me page, my artist bio and artist philosophy are videos and then I'm going to be reformatting my page and doing uh small artist talks about my core works as videos. That's great. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Bye.